a Boston sports talk veteran, I guess we'll call it at this point. Uh, One of the things I'm curious about, having done WEI for a number of years, do like veterans on the station or long timers like share stories of how like the before times were back before 2004 when the Sox won it all? And if there was like a major shift at that point in how people felt when they called into the station? Well, Ken, it's a pleasure to be here, first of all. Of course. Uh, Yes, I was telling you before we recorded that this last show we did together on my podcast was the most downloaded Outsports podcast of the month of June. So that's a big deal. King of the world, baby. So that's a huge deal. We're looking to replicate and duplicate (laughs) history here. Um, Red Sox, uh, I I don't know if there's, I mean, the story is that the fan base was much, it was much different and I would say much more passionate prior to 2004. I mean, I think... Uh, the Red Sox fan experience has become a lot less passionate over the last 15 years or so. I think a lot less personal. Some of that probably has to do with baseball's decline in general. But, uh, you know, pre-04, it was, I mean, it was live and die here. Especially, you know, you really go 99-04 where you had three ALCS meetings against the Yankees in a five-year span with all the big characters. I mean, that was, that rivalry was at an apex and. Red Sox-Yankee games really felt like football games, you know, even if they were played in May or June. Um, so, yeah, I mean, since they won in 04, I mean, it, it, it really it, – it, that's really kind of the line of demarcation and, and I think changed a lot of the experience. To be I, I, I get that because, you know, up until 2004, the storyline was that of the Epic Quest, which is something that I'm immensely familiar with. And not only did they conquer the Epic Quest then, but they did it in – the second most exciting way in baseball history to, of course, 2016. So I, I, I could see that after 2004 that, yeah. How about, Cubs, how about the Cubs experience after they won? It feels like, it, it, at least among my friends and I, um, we're kind of excited to discover we still care almost as much. Like, it, the one thing that's kind of gone with me now is that, that sense of haunting, that haunted sense of the fan base where – they got my grandfather. They might be getting my dad because he's in his 70s. They might be getting me at some point. Like, at some point, do this while my dad is still alive. And now they did. So now it's like I get to just be a fan of a normal team. And I'm actually, I personally am thrilled by that. Because uh, now it's just about enjoying each season individually for what it is, still getting mad as hell at them when they do stupid shit. But there's it's now lacking that, that sense that, uh, that almost like Nathaniel Hawthorne cursed to wear the scarlet number around kind of feel, which uh, uh, certainly I, at Boston, I mean, the home of Nathaniel Hawthorne. So uh, we're dropping literary references two minutes into this thing. We might as well go ahead with that. But I mean, it, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a great relief. It's, it's, yeah. And uh, I honestly love watching baseball after a great relief. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, though. I mean, like, you look at the 04 Red Sox team, of course, was a crazy team where they had Pedro and Manny and Damon and Cowboy Up and, and Schilling was on that team. And great. And, and that was a, a crazy team that wasn't only great to watch, but were just incredible personalities. And the Red Sox throughout their history had a lot of these big, larger-than-life, controversial personalities. What was interesting was after that 04 team, uh, you know, Theo Epstein, of course, you know, took over in 03. So the 04 team was really a Theo and really Dan Duquette, the previous GM, had the nucleus of that team. Theo, did, that was really Dan, Dan Duquette's nucleus. Um, the 07 team was very machine-like. I mean, it was a lot of 
that's when you saw Dustin Pedroia and John Lester and Papelbon came up. And, and that team was dominant. I mean, they were wire to wire, first place all the way, swept the Rockies in the World Series. But really, there wasn't a lot of tension. I mean, they were really just dominant and kind of kept their heads down. And that's really the line where then they win two times in a three-year span. And then we have all the winning with the Patriots and the Celtics and the Bruins won a cup. And it just... And yeah, a big part of the Red Sox experience, I think, did, did go missing. More after 07, I would say, even than after 04. Interesting. So it was like 07 was like the sense of, okay, they won it again, and now it's just like get another win. And, and yet, in spite of all that, they still had one of the great baseball stories of the past decade in 2013, right. the, the marathon bombing. And obviously, it was extenuating circumstances that made that a great story. But that was still a really compelling watch that year. Yeah, and, and Ortiz obviously was huge in 0407, but the 2013 team was unequivocally Ortiz's team as well. He gave that dugout speech in the World Series. Uh, but, but the weird thing about the 13 team was, and I loved the 2013 Red Sox. I loved that season, but they didn't really catch on here until – until the end. I mean, people didn't buy it. Uh, that was coming off of 2011, which was the historic September collapse and chicken and beer in the clubhouse. And then Terry Francona is fired and they smear him as this pain popping womanizer in the globe. And, and then Theo leaves as well. And then 2012 was a, a dumpster fire. It was yep. Bobby Valentine. And everyone was just so sour on the Red Sox that the 2013 team really was did not catch fire here until the very end and then you go to the last championship team 18 was I mean talk about just a machine I mean that team was the best team in franchise history and there really wasn't a doubt they were going to win it yeah yeah it's kind of fascinating that yeah they've had two machines in the past decade and a half right and yet the most compelling ones are the ones that aren't the machine so it's almost like if you're not the very best in team history it's a little more watchable which is, which is I mean, that 2013 team was so, it was interesting. I mean, that was really a team where, you know, your core was still Lester and Ortiz, but, uh, you know, John Lackey had a great year in 2013. And that was a great story, as you know, and now he was with the Cubs. I mean, he was somebody who was hated here. He was loathed. He was reviled. And he had a great 2013. And then he got traded to Latin the next year. Um, and then you got guys like Shane Victorino and Stephen Drew had a good year. These strange free agent signings that really were just kind of stopgap veterans who had a great 2013. And then 2014 was terrible. They like finished in last place and, you know. Right, because how, how are you going to follow 2013? They reset again. It, it was, it's very weird that the Red Sox for a, it seemed like a five, six year period had one year where they were great. And then the next year where they were not just bad, but like terrible. It was mm -hmm. very, there was no middle ground. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but if you occasionally get that burst of greatness, it still makes everything watchable over the span of a decade, at least uh, in my world anyway. They keep it interesting, that's for yeah. sure. They always yeah. do. Uh, let me do a quick pause and do the show open real fast here, and then we will dive into the Sox in 2020. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 34. Appropriately enough, the John Lester episode of Three Strikes You're Out podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer, to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. The other voice you're hearing on the Johnny Lesta episode is the deputy managing editor of Outsports and host of the Sports Kiki, I heard every Saturday on this here podcast network, Alex Reamer. Thank you for joining me, sir. Wait, so we weren't on before? What, what, well, we were we... definitely on. We were doing the cold open. This is Oh, the cold open, right. Yeah, okay. This is a comics podcast, yeah. I, I just keep talking until I realize that, yeah, it's started. So, All right. yeah. 
uh, keep you on your toes. It throws you. But uh, yeah, so um, going into from the glorious past into the present day of eh, Red Sox baseball in 2020. So is this maybe the lowest expectation for any Sox team since that Bobby Valentine year from hell that you reminisced about? Uh, I mean, Ken, who even knows? I mean, how can anyone even have a, a real handle? on it? It's a 60-game season, which, although what's interesting is, I'm sure you've read it, that if you were to go through it last year, if you cut the year in 60-game intervals, pretty much every playoff team would have qualified, except, of course, the Nationals, the, the, the champions. Yep. So I guess that throws that theory away. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it's in the, prior to all this, the coronavirus and everything, I mean, the Red Sox had a terrible offseason, as you know, with the sign-stealing scandal, trading Mookie Betts. Um, and frankly, there's kind of a feeling around here where a lot of people are just very soured on the whole operation. They're soured over Mookie Betts. They, the sign-stealing stuff they thought was ridiculous. And in this ownership group, it's, it's very interesting that, I mean, John Henry, if you look at it in isolation from a, the 10,000 feet uh, perspective, I mean, he's been an incredible owner. I mean, the Red Sox have won four World Series. Uh, they've made incredible improvements to Fenway Park. Uh, every year they have a top five, top three payroll. I mean, they spend money. I mean, they, they, they seem to do everything right from that standpoint, but they're just so despised here. Um, people just don't like John Henry at all. They don't like, they, he's not personable. He's, he's, he's not a warm character. Um, the way that they treat people on the way out from Terry Francona to the falling out they had with Theo to the falling out they have with so many players uh, just really rubs people the wrong way. People think they're very disingenuous. Um, and that kind of has really all come to a head the last couple of years. And then again, this off season, when you're the Red Sox, one of the most profitable, you know, valuable franchises in baseball, if not all sports, and you say you can't uh, bring back Mookie Betts because you can't afford him, like it, that just doesn't fly here. So a lot of people were just very, very soured on the whole experience. And yeah, I don't think people are expecting much. And frankly, I, I think that's not fine with people, but it would almost be, I think, cheapened if they had a great year to a lot of fans. It'd be like, they didn't really deserve it, you know? Fascinating. Yeah. Because, I mean, even before uh, the COVID-19 shutdown hit and we established this was only going to be a 60-game sprint of a season, as you say, they essentially spent the entire offseason telling fans, hey, it's okay not to be interested in 2020 because we certainly don't appear to be. Uh, yeah, it's so it, – it's been weird watch following the Sox on social media leading into the, the restart with uh, the summer camp because – They've been going hard at trying to promote Xander Bogarts and Raphael Devers and Andrew Benintendi. But every time I see like an Instagram post centered around the three of them, it's like, and there was another guy who was a part of this that, uh, yeah, was also pretty good. And, wow. and as, as I said, that they spent the entire offseason saying, first of all, making a trade that on the surface was the kind of trade that if you had made the Mookie Betts trade in a vacuum, it's the kind of thing where you'd say, and the GM should be fired the next day. Uh, and then they, they tried to uh, renegotiate it up uh, when the physical came back. And, you know, is there, is there any hope that Alex Verdugo can be somebody worthwhile in the wake of trading Mookie Betts? I mean, you probably know better than I can. He was a pretty big prospect coming up through the Dodgers system, right? A, a good prospect, yeah. His ceiling, is, as far as I know, is not certainly nowhere close to second-best yeah. player in baseball. Uh, it, it's the kind of thing that, yeah, if you weren't trading the absolute centerpiece of your franchise, you'd think, okay, yeah, we might be able to build around this guy. But uh, I, I, 
I, I don't see how he can escape this sense that he was traded for a franchise cornerstone in the next couple of years, especially in Boston. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll be tough for him for sure. The other thing with Verdugo is, I'm sure you're aware, he had the, the that the not he wasn't involved in a sexual assault when he was a minor leaguer, but he was present mm-hmm. reportedly. A yep. uh, few Dodgers, my, it was a very strange incident that uh, has never really been addressed either. So he has that hanging over him, which hurts because Mookie Betts, from what we know, just seems like the best guy ever. He would like. He would deliver food to homeless people in the middle of the night. He was like just in the middle of the playoffs. No, right. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like this great guy. Um, So, so that'll be different. Uh, But yeah, it's always hard to replace a guy like Mookie. Um, But you know, the thing is you still, you look at a 60 game season, Ken, you know, you you mentioned, they still have Benintendi and Bogarts is great. Endeavors is like on a historic start to his career from a Red Sox standpoint. I mean, he is awesome. And he's like, what, 22. I mean, he's so young. Um, they weren't going to have Chris Sale anyway, but you figure, you know, the Red Sox are thin in their rotation, but it's better to be thin over a 60-game season than in a 160-game season. So, I mean, I think there is that thought that they could back into it here. I mean, they could slug their way through a 60-game schedule, get enough pitching, and who knows, come the playoffs. So, oh, yeah. I think that's kind of the, the way I read it right now for them. In a 60-game schedule, yeah, pretty much anybody. Like, you could – find an alternate universe where the Orioles find some way to get some kind of Oriole magic going and play above their heads. What's that? Uh, I'm sorry? What's that? What's Oriole magic? Oriole magic. That is a song from, I want to say the mid seventies, kind of the Earl Weaver heyday. Uh, It's worth looking up because I think there's a video of Kevin Millar singing along with it at some point. Uh, But yeah, it's uh, Oriole magic used to be a thing when like the Orioles used to be good. So 30 years ago, essentially. It's, another another um, lifetime, as they say. Absolutely, yes. Long before either of us, honestly, were uh, that cognizant of baseball. Uh, one more Mookie Betts question before we move on to uh, more topics and the current Sox roster. Is it discouraging, especially given the team's history, to see the Red Sox trade what's most likely the best black player that that franchise has ever developed and someone who the city bonded around like that? Uh, I mean, that, that's interesting. I actually haven't thought of it that way. Um, yeah, I think it is disappointing because baseball, as we know, needs as many black stars as possible, though for the game, I mean, Mookie in Los Angeles is, is still a big market, so that's good. But um, yeah, I, I, when you put it that way, I think it is discouraging. Um, but I mean, I think that this ownership group, to give them credit, I mean, they have done a lot of reckoning with the past of the Red Sox. Uh, you know, they, they, they've never run, ran away from, from the history and they changed the Yaki Way name and Tory Hunter. Uh, you remember a couple months ago talked about his experiences in Boston with racial taunts and the Red Sox released a statement, which was very, I think, bold of them and said, yes, Tory is correct. And we're validating this because um, there was a lot of pushback around here, going back to even Adam Jones. A lot of fans don't like to admit that there could be racist behavior still in Boston at Fenway Park. So I give the Red Sox a lot of credit for that kind of stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't think race necessarily was a big part of the storyline with Mookie Betts. Um, and they still do have, you know, Devers, Bogarts are not African-American, but they are people of color. Jackie Bradley is a black player um, who's just incredible defensively in center field. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they also traded David Price, who's another black star, though he had a bit more of an onerous, ornery relationship with the fans here, certainly. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think – yeah, I think it is disappointing, but I don't think race was a big part of the 
of the conversation here with Mookie. I don't think it was. Sure. And, and to be clear, yeah, I, I don't think that they traded him away because he was a black star, but uh, just the, the kind of thing, given, given the Red Sox, the, the history of the fact that up until last year, the yeah. street next to Fenway Park was named after Tom Yawkey, for fuck's sake. Right. That, uh, yeah, the, the fact that they developed someone who was such an integral part of the black baseball experience in modern day and someone who could connect to the community uh, in Boston that way, uh, the fact that because now he wanted to be, to be paid what he was worth, that he's gone, just for me, was like, <sighs> Red Sox, geez. I know. The fact that they weren't willing to pay him, that was, I don't really understand it. I mean, what, it, what happened was, I mean, is they really, they messed up where they locked up so much money in Chris Sale before they had to. They signed him a year early, which obviously was a disaster because he got hurt last year. Um, Nathan Avaldi, they signed to a three-year, like $70 million extension after the World Series, which he was hurt all of last year pretty much. So they tied up so much money in their rotation that uh, they didn't have, they, you know, but, but again, the Red Sox, you figure always have enough money. Um, so yeah, a lame excuse. No one was buying it. And yeah, people were very upset. Certainly. Yeah. I'm glad no one's buying it because no one should buy it anytime any baseball owner cries for, because as I've said numerous times on the podcast before the Kansas city Royals were sold for a billion dollars this off season. So yeah. Tom Rickett says biblical losses. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's there's a big section about the marquee network in the book of Job. So, yeah, be sure to check that out. Uh, you mentioned Chris Sale going for Tommy John surgery, which after his last year, understandable, uh, going into a very shortened season, why he'd say, you know what? Yeah, let's get this done and move on. And then uh, just today, I just saw on the news headlines, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez tested positive for COVID-19. And it's to me, uh, it's weird kind of leading that into a question about the pitching staff, because any headline about a player testing positive for COVID-19, the story should be Eduardo Rodriguez has COVID-19. And I feel just like ee, a little icky even thinking about how does that impact the Red Sox rotation at this point? Yeah, it is strange. I mean, I think I read, uh, yeah, I mean, if the season's going to come down to, Ken, if they do have one, is which team can either avoid a coronavirus outbreak or suffers their coronavirus outbreak like early in the year instead of the playoffs, which is just, just so messed fucked up Yeah, on so many angles. Right. I mean, that's kind of, I feel like what it'll come down to. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and that's, and that's like this time in microcosm right there where uh, even, you know, as a baseball fan and as someone who really would love to see baseball happen again. And as someone who saw the lights of goddamn Wrigley field, from my apartment window on Sunday night and just had a moment where like this wave of happiness that I forgot existed hit me. Even with all that, that's still realizing that when we're talking about everything in like this in a baseball context, we're dehumanizing Eduardo Rodriguez and his very real problem and, and his very real health issue that he's now got a face of having to deal with this virus that is shutting everything down in this country. And yeah, that, there's something about participating in that, that that makes me feel a little wrong, even though the baseball fan in me still wants to talk about the Red Sox rotation. So it's like rem reminding myself that I've got to shut down that baseball fan and Eduardo Rodriguez humanity still has always got to come first if we're ever to, to learn anything from this. Yeah, but, but I mean, I, yeah, players though have always been pieces of meat. Now I guess it's just more apparent than ever. <laughs> Spoken like a true sports radio host there. Yes, that's... Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, that's, that's the way so many fans view it. And it's, it's, uh, and yeah, I get why players are so cynical toward fans uh, when, you know, that's, that's the way we talk about them for so, for in so many instances like this, that uh, 
And uh, yeah, so let's move on here for to slightly change topics. Actually, uh, speaking of COVID testing, this week we had uh, MLB um, telling the players at the start of this past week that in many camps that the COVID testing that they promised them over the offseason was going to be a little delayed results-wise because MLB forgot that FedEx's shipping schedule over Fourth of July weekend is not uh, normal. And at this point, I'm looking at this like Lily von Stuck, just going, I'm tired of playing the game. Ain't it a friggin' shame? Uh, so any any excuse to get a Madeline Kahn reference, the whole reason I brought this up. But time and again, at, at this point, uh, is it on us for hoping for something different from baseball owners? Because they've showed us already who they are, and this is just more of that. It's yeah, blame the poor FedEx guy. I mean, really, it's like uh, it's it's like when Ryan Braun blamed the delivery guy when he like tested mm-hmm. positive for his for steroids. R- um, Ryan Braun honestly should buy the Brewers at this point. It's because uh, yeah, he has he has shown them the damn way. Uh, so yeah, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, who I mean, who could have thought that? I mean, who could have planned for a Fourth of July holiday? It's not like you know what's coming up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Um, and yeah, it, it just shows you cannot, you know, just because you have a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that you're wise. And I think we're learning that with a, a lot of sports owners and baseball owners in particular. Yeah, it's just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're wise, but it does mean you get treated like you're wise by so many people. And I think that's the problem of why we are where we are right now. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, another story that hit this week uh, the Athletic at the beginning of the week, uh, their theme week right now is stadiums and ballparks. And they published a fan survey of all of MLB's uh, baseball parks. And uh, I am a huge Fenway Park fan. It is my second favorite place in the game. Yep. And uh, I was scrolling through trying to find it in there. And I kept scrolling and I kept scrolling and I kept scrolling. And uh, it is number 21 on the Athletic survey of really? all MLB. Uh, just behind new Yankee Stadium, no less, which uh, talk about insult to injury there. The Yankee Stadium sucks. I hate it there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know any Yankee fans who like Yankee Stadium, let alone anybody who would have responded to the survey. Um, but uh, looking a little deeper into it, it looks like they had like categories on both amenities and sight lines. And if you're still playing in a park that opened the same week the Titanic went down, I realize you're not going to score at that point in either of those. Uh, but let me put it to you. Uh, is it worth the discomfort of going to Fenway Park to still see a game in what's essentially a baseball cathedral at this point? What was number one on that, Wes? Uh, number one was uh, San Francisco, whatever name they're calling it right now, which I get it. Yeah. I've been there. I've been to that upper deck and yeah. You, sitting in the upper deck in San Francisco, you feel bad for the people in the front row for not getting that view. Um, I'm sure they're fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they, they'll make it through somehow, and especially in the Bay Area. But, but it, that, that's how good. Like, like you go through the portal into the, the seating bowl in San Francisco, and it's like you almost have to stop and just, like, let it hit you for a second. It's, it's so amazingly gorgeous. Have you been? To San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, I have. It's it's great park. Um, I enjoy going to Fenway. I mean, as I get older, my Fenway experience is I'll sit for a few innings and, like, walk around. Like, they have a right field roof deck bar that you can go to. And I don't know, too too long to sit there in these seats for hours on end, for me at least. Um, uh, yeah, I like Fenway. They've done a great job, as I said, kind of cleaning it up. And, and uh, But, yeah, I mean, a lot of the seats are not great. I mean, you're really 
so many of the seats you've been, you've, you've been to Fenway, right? Yes, I mean, so many of the seats and you're in the grandstand, you're not staring at home plate. You're staring like to the outfield, you're staring at a pole. So uh, the view can be obstructed in many areas, can be very tight in many areas. So I, it really depends where you're sitting. But I mean, the thing about Fenway where that it's morphed into, and I, I guess this is what Wrigley's kind of always been like, and Fenway has just become that the last few years is it's really just like a party. Like people go with their friends to drink some, you know, $12 cups of Bud Light and, uh, you know, milly around for a few hours and then go home like that, that diehard fan who's sitting in his seat for all nine innings, intently focused on the game. I don't really think exists at Fenway anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. It's become much more of like a social event. And that's why, you know, attendance for the Red Sox, I think really it doesn't matter whether they win, lose. I mean, Fenway is always a draw for people. I, I, like I said, I think it's kind of morphed into what Wrigley has always been, yeah. or at least had that reputation. Uh, yeah, it's somewhat, and Wrigley's reputation is uh, deserved uh, for the most part. What's, what's kind of interesting, actually, in, the, in that point of comparison, is that Wrigley, for maybe 15 to 20 years ago, was every bit like what you just described, a place where people just went to drink and look at people and, and, and just to socialize in the bleachers and stuff like that. Um, and the Cubs sold it that way for decades right. as, uh, as this is Wrigley Field. This is where you show up to have fun. And oh, by the way, there's Sammy Sosa. Right, right, right. Um, but actually what's happened over the past five or six years, especially since they've gotten as good as they've been, is that it's kind of narrowed the focus of the fans that show up now. So it's, it, in actuality, they're more into the game now than they were, I would say, a decade ago. Which hmm. is, it, it, Believe me, the party element is still there. Uh, and people in the bleachers especially, they like to keep track. There's something that they call cup stacking, where they try to create the, the biggest snake of beer cups they can in the bleachers and see if they can do it like 40 or 50 high. And that's, uh, that's still a thing there. But even between all of that, um, just watching the game now, it really, you can tell the difference in, in, in the Cub fan base, that people are much more tuned in to what's going on in the field than, than really I can remember them being in maybe 25 or 30 years, even though the party element is still there and it's still sold that way. Mm -hmm. um, what would you uh, tell someone who is going to Fenway Park for the first time? Like, is, is there an essential experience still at Fenway to really kind of get a sense of what this place is all about? Yeah, you can walk around. I mean, what's, what's amazing about Fenway is, I mean, and I guess Wrigley is like this too, is it's in the city. I mean, it literally is in Boston. I mean, Kenmore Square is right there. Uh, the Fenway area around the ballpark is is gorgeous. I mean, so it is right in the city. You take the T in, just cram onto a subway car. That's the experience. You walk around the park. And I mean, seeing the green monster seats uh, though those came into existence in 2003, um, that's a great experience. And, you know, that's an experience like no other. So I, I just think, and you just walk around Fenway. I mean, there is still, there's just, it's a lot of history there. As you mentioned, it's been around for so long. So I, I would go, I would make sure to sit, uh, maybe not in the old grandstand, because you'll be staring at, you know, the outfield instead of home plate. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but you know, even the bleachers at Fenway is a fun experience where you kind of see it. it's, it's, it's unique. And there's certainly a lot of character to Fenway as well, even, even, despite all the renovations over the years. I mean, there still is. There's only yeah. so much you can do with like a 120-year-old park. Absolutely. And it's, it's for the best, honestly. It still feels like and there's still enough of the old park there where it feels like, yeah, this is still the authentic Fenway Park experience you're getting. Uh, and honestly, uh, 
at, at some point, the, one of the Fenway uh, things I haven't crossed off in my bucket list is I want to see a game from the red seat. Uh, have, have you ever mm. sat close to? I have not. Um, I've been to bleachers many times, but I have not sat on the red seat. And as you know, that's uh, maybe that's been disputed, the red seat. I mean, yeah. did Williams really hit the ball there? That's in dispute. Um, I don't Probably not a great view, Ken, to be honest. The red seat and the bleachers. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would not be going for the view, but just the sense of the idea that, yeah, at least the story goes, Ted Williams once hit this thing on the fly, and that in and of itself is cool enough for me, even though, I mean, there, there are stories of Big Poppy taking aim at it in big bat, batting practice and eventually saying no fucking way, which I think are great. Yeah, well, I mean, so you, you would sit for hours at that. Like, when does the allure wear off and you go, I'm now in, like, a crappy seat? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I, uh, I'm a, enough of a history nerd where... Yeah, uh, it just might carry me through most of the game. I feel Ted Williams' ghost right yes, there. Yes, feel Ted Williams' ghost cursing me out, uh, as he would for pretty much anybody sitting in that, the stands at that, at that park. Probably. Yeah, or, or spitting in my direction, as, as he was wont to do. Except this year. I mean, you can't go to the park anyway, right. but if you could, no spitting this year. So <laughs> yes, yeah. Ted Williams would be suspended for like a decade after, after this year. Uh, which Probably. Would be, yeah. Which would be baseball's, uh, yeah, baseball's issue, I guess. And uh, so one more thing I want to talk to you about here. Uh, and it's a story that you published uh, maybe about a month ago in Outsports that, uh, that struck the hell out of me. And it was actually in response to a question you got uh, on the Sports Kiki. Yes. Um, and it's one that uh, you wrote about uh, when you were um, a, a kid. You were a kid blogger slash podcaster, right? Me, yes. Yeah. Uh, Tonight Show credit, right? I mean. Oh, big big deal, Ken. I was telling yeah. you comedic chops there. See, I mean, of, yeah, there, there's one of us who's got a tonight show credit, and it ain't me. So, <laughs> so essentially, I, I was I, on with our comedy guys. I was on with Larry the Cable Guy, Jeff Foxworthy, and uh, the other one, Bill Engvall. Oh God, Jesus! Yeah. Uh, how, very, how much racist very, shit did you hear from them? A lot. I gave them shit. Larry was a great guy. I don't know what he's doing now. Is he still around, Larry the Cable Guy? Oh yeah. Uh, so Larry the Cable Guy is um yeah he is uh, his real name is dan whitney right and yeah he's uh, been a touring comic even before he became larry the cable guy for i want to say 20 years just as himself uh so yeah he is someone who is uh well aware that the persona has gotten him everything he has and uh knows that uh that particular crowd has gotten him everything he has uh but he knows his bread is buttered i guess yeah yeah. Has it become like political or are they still apolitical? Um, well, I mean, I, I think like a lot of people who appeal to the blue collar crowd that yeah. I, he, is he, I don't know. At least at least in character he stays as as like kind of a hardcore right winger. I'm not sure in person whether whether or not he is. Uh I never I mean I I I mean I, he was a nice guy to meet and we and we joked around on the stage, uh, but I mean I never found him funny at all. Oh yeah. <laughs> there's a story that I, I forget who told me this, but uh, supposedly like he had a big 4th of July party at like some private lake he now owns because he's got all the money uh, and they were shooting off fireworks with a bunch of comics. And at one point uh, his wife told everyone to raise their glass and just say, Hey, remember this is the lake that poop jokes bought. So <laughs> yeah, he knows who he is and he knows. Well, he's been on it, then. That's good. That's yeah. good. Uh, but yeah, so I bring, I bring this up because you talked a lot about in, in this article and on the podcast about how your time as someone who threw himself completely into the world of sports blogging and podcasting 
was also kind of a way to make to help you avoid thinking about your sexuality as you were starting to realize that you were attracted to guys and that you might be a gay man. And I read this the day you published it at Outsports, and all I could think of was switch sports blogging to jokes and it me. Like I, I was seeing there, Alex Reamer. And the, the phrase you used that really struck me was, this was not the work of a martyr, but rather somebody who was afraid to think introspectively about himself. And, and you know, as, as someone who came out relatively late in life at 35 uh, and wrote an entire goddamn show in college about, you know, how much the Cubs sucked versus how much I struggled asking women out. I mean, yeah, I entirely felt that. So I, I guess my first question for you in, in, in thinking through all that, uh, do you ever feel that you're still trying to make up for lost development years that you spent obsessing about work uh, and, and really not getting in touch with who you were and your true self? Absolutely. Without a doubt. And that's actually how I phrase it to a lot of people. Yes. Yes. I am absolutely trying to make up for lost time. Um, I am 27. I, I like to enjoy my weekends when I can. I am uh, yes, yes. I'm definitely making up for lost time and, and enjoying it. I mean, I, I did not really, uh, you know, I don't like to say it like this because I did have some good friends growing up and in college, even I was out, but I was just coming out and I made some amazing friends in college, but, uh, never really had that much fun and never really liked who I was or felt comfortable even who I was as a person, even, even, even right after coming out, like in, in college and as a, po a young post-grad, I was still really trying to figure out who I was, where I fit into this world. And I know you have written about your experiences too, uh, similar things. So yes, uh, I, 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 I've never liked myself more than I like myself now as a person. I've never felt more comfortable as a person and confident than I do now. So yeah, I'm absolutely trying to make up for lost time because in college, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. I was, you know, I was, I was blogging away, podcasting mm -hmm. away. Yeah, and, and I was doing the same thing, just writing things in a joke book. Uh, and it, it's interesting you say that because, yeah, in terms of view of myself right now, that I've never felt more completely me and completely willing to talk as the real me now. And, and yet, um, I also feel, and the way I kind of phrase it, especially when I'm around others in Chicago's gay community, is it, it feels like, so many other gays are already playing this on expert and I'm still stuck on tutorial level. We're all on tutorial level to yeah. an extent. It's yeah. uh, different. It's, it's a, it, we're all on tutorial level. We're all learning. It's all a journey. Um, if you, the people, when you sexualize with the people who you also socialize with, it, it can get very messy and very tough to navigate. And I don't know about you, but I find it kind of challenging to talk to, really have many straight friends anymore to be honest but the few I still have um I find it very challenging to talk to them about gay life because it's just it's different they don't really get it hmm. um I don't know if you have the same experiences but at that's, least that's, that's what fascinating I yeah uh I, I still have a number of straight friends uh and I, I think partly because I made so many friends who turned out to be lifelong friends when I was yeah. still in the closet so it's like right. less a sense of I, I don't know how to relate to you and more it's to me it's more a sense of I'm now relating to you completely right uh, and I, I almost find myself wanting to talk about gay things and gay attractions more around them hmm. uh, because I spent so many years just not and it's almost like 
now I'm revealing my entire self to you. And, and I've had more than one friend tell me that they really like talking to me now, especially because it, it feels like I'm more human to them in a way. No, that's great. I mean, were you like a cyborg who like didn't date women and like never talked about girls and like they're like... Nailed it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, uh, as I say, lost in a world of jokes and baseball stats. And, and I, I would tell, I would spend years kind of telling can't get laid jokes, which were on a very like uh, a big bang theory level, almost yeah. like very basic, like even in the act. Uh, they were probably, I would hope, decently written, but they weren't really getting to the heart of any true feelings I had. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting that uh, jokes also kind of eventually were the thing that helped lead me out of it. Because as I was finally starting to like embrace this part of myself, I almost used my joke book as kind of a coming out journal where I would write jokes about being attracted to guys and jokes about being gay and would eventually think to myself, OK, you want to use these? You actually have to tell people at some point. Uh, yeah. And, and so it almost became kind of an incentive after a while, which, which was kind of inter interesting reversal in my life. No, that is, that, that is interesting. Um, I mean, to me, like my first few times going to a gay bar, gay clubs, it was, it was really like an, such an intoxicating experience. I never felt that free or that, like, I was like, finally, like I found my people, hmm. you know what I'm saying? Uh, cause so, cause so much of friendship in life is just based off the question of, oh, you too, like you're into that too. And that's kind of, you know, that's how I feel around a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of my gay friends now. I mean, I just feel a bond with them that I don't think can be replicated, at least for me, um, you know, with other people. And, and when I also tell, uh, I got like what I said, what I say to my very good friend from college, I'm still good friends with is like, you know, imagine if your whole life, like you're a straight person and you only grew and you only were around gay people. Like you only were around gay people. Everyone you were around was also attracted to the same sex and you were the only one attracted to women. And then like you find that, oh my God, there are people who are also attracted to women. Like you want to hang out, like, you want to hang out with them because you never have experienced that before. So that's, that's how I kind of explain it too. Yeah. Oh yeah. That makes, that makes total sense because uh, you talk about um, emerging from a world where you knew you didn't quite belong into a space where you are completely comfortable. And, and yeah. like that, to um, talk about a burden we were talking about earlier, baseball burden being lift off, lifted off your shoulders. This is a life burden being lifted off. And yeah, that's, that's a great thing. Uh, no doubt about it. And uh, yeah, so on the subject of great things, Alex Reamer, this has been a delight. Uh, do you have anything to plug or who's on the sports kiki this weekend? Oh my goodness, Ken, you're too kind. Uh, this, hold on, let me get the exact name on the sports kiki. We have a great guest, Matthew Rodriguez, who uh, is an editor for thebody.com. He also contributes to Teen Vogue and other publications. And uh, who is Matthew Rodriguez and why am I having him? Well, um, so he had a very, first of all, do you, were you following the Fire Island gays who were dragged for just being idiots? Like, oh yeah these thousand person beach circuit parties mm -hmm. yeah they were being okay. shirtless idiots so i don't have to be yeah exactly well i mean yes yes exactly um so so they were dragged uh you know all over social media this week um but this but matthew rodriguez who i'll speak with on the podcast this week i thought just had an excellent excellent twitter thread and i don't usually read twitter threads i don't <laughs> like them but uh but this was not an obnoxious one this was a great one and he really explained kind of uh a lot of the issues he had with a lot of the shaming that was going on with these Fire Island gays, um, like not say not condoning the behavior, but 
about how, you know, like, are we going to get into a situation where, you know, gay people are blamed for a spread of coronavirus, whereas, you know, straight people are gathering in huge crowds on beaches all over the country for months. I mean, spring break, go on down the line. And I don't know if the shaming quite reached, reached the level that we saw with a lot of the Fire Island Pines gays from over the weekend. And, you know, I think the other thing that he talks about that I've been talking about a lot on my show the last several months is like, you know, we are naturally social people. And I think a lot of this, you know, I think a lot of the messaging with the coronavirus, especially early on, was so draconian. It was, you know, stay home, all or nothing, you know. And when you start conflating, when you start saying that all behavior is this, carries the same amount of risk, which is what I think the draconian stay home messaging is, then people just ultimately don't listen at all. Like, like if you're telling me that, you know, I shouldn't even go outside for a walk, which was what a lot of the messaging was at the start of this, where obviously that's ridiculous. Um, I think a lot of people just don't really know what to do because there's just been just such poor leadership from all levels on this. So I, like, I just think we were not going to shame ourselves out of this pandemic. And I understand people have no control and social shame because it's a way for them to feel like they're in control. But to me, it's just very ugly, odious, and unhelpful behavior. Um, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna explore that topic. You can tell Excellent. I feel yeah, it, it's so. yeah, interesting. It, uh, it's I, I, I very much get what you're saying because uh, I remember the first time that I managed to leave my neighborhood, uh, which was like two months after the stay-at-home yeah. order, and it was almost like I, I wasn't able to get to sleep the night before because I was going to meet a friend out in Wrigleyville. And mm -hmm. I just kept thinking, how much risk am I putting myself into doing this? Uh, and it was like such an amazing thing to walk the two and a half miles from my apartment to there and back and realize, okay, yeah, I can do this and not be in any real danger because I can trust myself. And obviously that's different from surrounding myself with, you know, 200 twinks on Fire Island, but nonetheless, yeah. That's the usual. And you're taking the summer off from Fire Island this summer, right? Yeah. You'll back with your twinks next oh year. yeah yeah it's uh it's a little bit far from lake michigan uh to make the trip this time but you know uh it's it's the sacrifice i make for my country alex reamer what can you do i'm a patriot i'll do it yes uh but yeah this has been great thank you so much for joining me sir hey ken always fun